0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Confessions Are of We Timorous Bushy. This is your host, Menion, also known as Rob. I've had enough feedback from people who've been listening to the show uh, to decide to go ahead with the continuation of Janet Veal's More Deadly Than the Male. And this is part two, Non-Human Females. Whether we go through the whole series um, or not, I don't know. I'll do it um, how I see fit. Um, But this is from um, issue seven of the Adventurer magazine. And of course, I won't be looking at the whole, I won't be reading the whole uh, article, although it, you know, it's only two pages long uh, or triple-columned, triple-columned pages though it is. Um, But I will take out some excerpts that uh, appeal to me or seem interesting to me and uh, read them forth. So um, this one is, as I said, is about non-human females and... She stresses at the beginning, and I should probably read this, that these are only suggestions since all the races are imaginary, whether the products of collective imagination, i.e. myths and folklore, or individual creativity. Hence, any referee can, of course, do exactly what she likes with them without being informed of their historical inaccuracy. So that's a really good point, you know. Um, And the next point, which I found curious, right in this uh, introductory paragraph, is a mention about sexual partners. So let's see what she has to say about that. In considering non-human races, an important but fairly obvious point relating to genetics is frequently ignored. Most individuals will normally prefer a member of their own species as a sexual partner and be most attracted by members of their own species of course, there will always be exceptions resulting from odd circumstances, especially with races which are physically similar, such as humans and elves. Um, that's her word, odd, there, <laughs> odd, odd exceptions. Um, And she goes on to say, also half-breeds resulting from these unions are almost, uh, utmost, excuse me, are almost certain to be sterile. For example, mules. Sorry, this is uh, guerrilla podcasting, so I do... Uh, um, munch over my words from time to time and tumble. So now she she here she she mentions two words which um, I wouldn't normally uh, use: uh, half breed and mule. Um, you know clearly um, when we're talking about race, particularly even fa- even fantasy races, um, this can be a slightly dangerous territory because the the common practice. would say I wouldn't say the temptation the common practice is to liken uh, fantasy races um, which are um, very different species to to parts of the human race Um, because you know uh, the typical use of the word uh, race is to um, look at slight variations in the human genetic pool. So first up is the female elf. Now Janet points out that the female elves, that female elves are often considered to be just as powerful as their male counterparts. Um, and that there is some indication that the society would be uh, more equal than than um, a typical sort of medieval Euro- Western European style uh, setting. Uh, and she also mentions uh, the drow as a, one example of a, a matriarchal society and for her individual elven women are frequently portrayed as having great or ill-defined magical powers in folklore she says elven women are primarily beautiful and dangerous if not actually evil their major roles in folk tales are to bring temptation and destruction on the noble male heroes who encounter them There are exceptions, but women who actually take active roles are invariably seen as evil. Does this say something about the frailty of male egos? But this need not be so. For one such, excuse me, for one thing, can humans be certain elves share human standards of beauty? Perhaps those alluring elven women are considered plain or downright ugly by their own people. Does this explain their desire to lure human males? Equally, how can humans be sure that they understand how elven women feel, or why they act as they do? An elf is not a human and should not be played as such. So she's not pulling any punches again. Um, of course, um, as I mentioned in the first uh, episode, or the first installment of this, um, she's she is looking at the stereotypes and then she's talking about well she's trying to explain how they have developed and also how we can flip them over so she makes what she calls a slight digression and then and starts talking about um well that this point that uh, elves are not humans and so they shouldn't be merely played as such um and i think this is a really good point and it's very very much uh very valid point even today uh, something that's really not uh, looked at uh, as hard as it should Um, the races are generally seen as the bags of abilities um, and ways of um, of optimizing your your build more than um, something uh, to be role played quite differently so she says They are not simply scaled down humans with pointed ears, but something alien and incomprehensible to humans. And as examples of how we might um, look at this, she says that we need to bring across the effects of their long life. She says a young elf has 10 centuries of life ahead of her. As such, there will be ample time for her um, for whatever she may wish to do. And then she examines how that might have uh, an impact on different relations whether with relationships with a human spouse for example or lovers and um, she says that the longevity of elves has one major effect on their lives that is the lives of females children need only uh, be born rarely and even allowing for a longer pregnancy and childhood for elves the female will have far less of their time taken up with family raising and far more time for other activities. And you can imagine the kind of impact that would have on elven society, particularly where elven society meets human society uh, individually through relations or in, in, in a um, setting where both uh, races live together. Now she looks a little bit more closely at the individual relationship particularly the romantic attachments that might form between elves and humans. Love can be a powerful force, she says, and there will be couples who choose to ignore the social mores and brave the troubles of a life together. The great difference in life expectancy will be a major barrier. Also, despite physical similarities, the two races are very different psychologically. Traditionally, elves are soulless and are frequently detached in their outlook. Uh, quick note here, yes, elves are soulless. If you do not know, go back to the earlier editions. Uh, they could not be raised by um, resurrection or raised dead spells. Uh, return to text. This um, has an impact. Yes, this detached, that they may frequently be detached in their outlook. The human partner in a relationship may begin to regard this as coldness. You have a little bit of vulcan perhaps, you know. Similarity to the Vulcans of Star Trek. As he grows elderly, he may begin to suspect, whether justly or unjustly, that his still attractive wife is seeking other lovers. The elven partner, on the other hand, will have the heartbreak, assuming that she is capable of such emotion, of watching her loved one grow old and die while she remains young. She may also come to realise how shallow her human lover is. So there's a little bit of a um, she's touching on, on Tolkien there, the relationship between Aragorn and Arwen, and then she's given a little bit of a real world spin uh, with the possibilities of jealousy and and uh, eventual kind of estrangement um, growing between couples, something that Tolkien doesn't really seem to touch on, at least not in the Lord of the Rings, perhaps he does in Unfinished Tales um, and his tales of, of Numenor, but that's another story. So she continues. They are likely to be very aware of the stresses between their parents, and she says this of the half elf children that might grow up between such parents. The human parent may grow impatient with the relatively slow development of the child, so again, she's saying that um there may be some slight physical differences based on the longevity and the the well the the need as a as a as a species for these for these um, for the for the young offspring to grow at the same speed or a different speed than human uh, offspring so the the half elf children will be slightly different and also they may have there may be this impact you know based on these stresses developing these stresses developing between their parents uh, what effect would that have on the children would there be other kind of um, Uh, physiological, uh, other than psychological, would there be physiological differences? Um, Would the the children be unable to have um, children themselves? It's not really something that's touched upon in the rules. Um, Is a child of a half-elf a half-elf, or are they a quarter-elf? Or can they have children at all? One still unresolved problem concerning Dwarven women is, do they or don't they? Have beards, I mean says Janet. So giving them beards, she says, would certainly explain the lack of reference to Dwarven women in folklore and mythology. On the other hand, beardless Dwarven women may be easier for players to relate to. However, saying that they have beards does not mean that Dwarven men will lust after human women. Well, this is an interesting point because I believe in Dragon, or perhaps even in the player's handbook of the first edition of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, Gary Gygax does in fact um, suggest that is the case that dwarven men are kind of a little bit they have a bit of a tendency towards lecturing after lecturing after, excuse me le, not lecturing lecturing after uh, human women and I don't know if she's writing this in response to that or or if it's just a, um, uh, a bit of chance but yeah, here you go she makes a really clever point here that if dwarven men do prefer beardless women, then either dwarves would have died out long ago, or dwarven women would re- routinely shave. So again, she's saying the the the, the sexual mores, the the preferences, um, expectations uh, of our society also have a they shape our bodies, you know, as well, and um, they shape the way that we present ourselves. Um, you can see this in in human society. Um, just look at uh, makeup trends, or the the lengths that people, usually women, will go to to um, to make their their waists look smaller, or their feet look smaller, or something look bigger. Um, and so, yeah, I mean that makes sense. That uh, when you're looking at your fancy races, that you also. Bear in mind these these um, social pressures to to conform or to adapt to to the needs of uh, your world. So, um, yeah, I like that point. That's really quite good. Presumably, she goes on the explanation for female dwarves being so rarely portrayed in artwork is that they don't provide suitable material for male adolescents to ogle in the way that elven women do. Yeah, I love that point. Yeah, it's a good slap down. Um, Guilty as charged. So, moving on towards the end of this section on the dwarves. Um, Janet goes on to say that dwarven men tend to be a little patronising and possessive of their womenfolk. Um, For the most part... The women are equally patronising about their menfolk, knowing that they hold the true secrets of Dwarven society." Now these secrets that are being referred to here um, are mentioned slightly before. So Janet suggests that in your um, Dwarven society, that perhaps the women um, have some of the secrets, the secrets of making, um, brewing ale, for for example, or other other things, perhaps um, creating jewellery. Who knows? um so the, the the women are are perhaps they believe that they have the the true secrets of, the, of keeping dwarven society together some dwarven women however do fight alongside or against their menfolk and many of these become adventurers such females are of course beyond the pale as far as most dwarven men are concerned since there's really nothing in the folklore uh, or history with regards to the halfling race, or the hobbit race, if you prefer. And because, you know, Tolkien doesn't really go into that much detail, Janet really, um, she picks up on the character of Lobelia Sackville Baggins uh, from Tolkien, and she uses this to sort of tease out some possible um, types that um, the characters, uh, halfling Female characters might um, possess. So she she points out that um, Lobelia is uh, quite strong, and she's she's res- revealed as having these reserves of strength much greater than the Hobbit men. So on one hand, you could have the Hobbit women with uh, they're raised, they're very much like the menfolk, but more so they're kind of like uh, hobbits or halflings on on steroids. So they they. They're even more um skilled thieves, they're even more sneaky, more hungry et cetera. You can sort of like exaggerate the 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 um attributes of the the male halfling um and that's one suggestion. The other one is that they're more stay at home they they like these um matriarchs that take care of the 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 fam- family the clan at home, and they are very much in charge and order things as well as they can. And by um by way of uh, comparison, the, the male folk are seen as childish, childish and juvenile. And so they're treated with condescension by the female matriarchs. So it's just a few ideas she has there. Um she also points out that the if if this is the case, there's there could be this more frightening uh, aspect of the halfling, that that they are um the halfling women are quite powerful. Um and so you could Uh, Janet suggests that you could have like um, a halfling thief that's been tracked and captured or defeated by a party. Um, And then their their wife or mother or lover comes out and seeks revenge. It sounds a bit ridiculous until you think of uh, Grendel. Uh, Grendel's mother is, um, you know, a major sort of a powerful character. Um, And actually Janet goes on to talk about that later on. Um, but seeing as I'm there already, I'll jump ahead. So yes, yeah, so these, um, th- there are female uh, she-trolls such as Grendel's mother and the these, um, and in, in RuneQuest um, Janet points out that the, the trolls are really not um, a great deal of difference between the male and the female um, and that the, the the, the trolls are quite you know quite powerful characters so um that's the hobbit you know the, the halfling and the hobbit so there's not really a lot there She's not like our uh, uh, you know elven elven women now at this point janet goes on to look at um first the half orc and then from that she leaps into the territory of the monster and female monsters um uh, humanoids and so, so on um And the bridging um, point between these sort of cutesy sort of races and then the half-walk is quite interesting because I think it's quite um, contemporary. Uh, That's a bad word to use because it means all sorts of things. it's, it's, um, It's very valid today, in fact. So she says, and I'll quote her in full, As a general policy, I try to treat members of all races as characters, giving them free will, and therefore therefore individuality. With the exception of, of summoned or certain other magical creatures, no creature is automatically evil. Of course, the culture and the dominant religion of a race will mean that members of that race have a particular view of life, but there should be no such thing as a racial alignment, only an individual or a cultural one. This leads to much more interesting and different role-playing situations, as well as interesting people. I could sum this up with a philosophy, um, I could sum up the philosoph- this philosophy with the phrase Orcs are people too. That's great. I really like that. That's quite a strong um, examination in a very short space. Um, and I love the fact that she splits up alignment from and takes it away from racial and just looks at it as merely being a, a cultural or uh, religious construct, a social construct. Very nice. So next, Janet uh, looks at the female orc and notes that they aren't really dealt with uh, to a satisfactory level uh, or degree in Lord of the Rings, uh, in Tolkien's works, or even in Dungeons & Dragons. She says, For some reason in AD&D, it was decreed that they be far fewer in number than their menfolk. This is quite illogical and ridiculous, especially when combined with the warlike nature of the men. With male orcs forever dying in battle, the women are likely to, likely to be vastly um, outnumber them. To say that orcs naturally produce significantly more boy children than girl children is one possible answer, but that gives other problems. For example, orcs are often assumed to breed like rabbits, a necessity considering the normal orc mortality rate. Any biologists will tell you that it is the number of females that is the critical factor restricting the breeding rate of species. So to produce more little Orcs, you need a large number of Orc women. Then she goes on to look at um, some ways that we can make sense of this. So she points out that, well, it's possible that it could be a a Orc society could be a patriarchal society. And that's why we don't see women uh, so much or it could be the reverse that it's in fact a matriarchal society perhaps the reason female orcs are so rarely seen is because they remain at home sending the menfolk to do the dangerous and difficult works from which they reap the rewards I think that's a really interesting little twist on it and uh, she has this image of uh, of the party being led back to the leader of the orc band after being captured and then being confronted finally with a large, powerful, bejeweled orc woman. Quite an interesting, uh, interesting uh, depiction there. Next uh, she looks at the half orc and it's obviously, a, a, this is a tricky um, area and has been for D&D uh, for years. <laughs> so she gets straight into the nitty gritty. Half orcs are usually assumed to be the result of rape of human women by an orc. But need that necessarily be true? Love, as has been remarked on many occasions, is a very peculiar thing. So she returns the the same um, thing that she looked at before. The this uh, phenomenon of of well the, of humans and humans uh, falling in love, regardless of the of the differences between the species, um, and while it might be rare, well, we have to look at it from a game mechanics or a settings perspective, when we have um, half elves or half orcs or such like, um, unless we explain them through magical means, so yeah, she she paints this lovely little picture of um, um of a of a male injured uh, male being being taken care of by a orcish woman who perhaps an outcast, um, and how. A love grows between the two of them. Uh, and she states that it's unlikely that either Orkish or human society would accept the children of such a, well, su- such, a, such a couple or the offspring of such a couple. And if nothing else, the difference in life expectancy would lead to eventual tragedy as with, half, with the half-elf. Uh, she, she says of the children that they would have an awkward time providing ample motivation for taking to the adventure in life, which is what we really care about anyway in role-playing games, Uh, don't we? She goes on. In many fantasy societies, I'll try and pronounce that again. In many fantasy societies, the main or only virtue a woman can have is good looks. Ugliness is often equated with evil. As such, female half-orc, being tougher than a human woman, with other um, and with few prospects of finding a respectable place in for herself in human society, and with a chip on her shoulder, is ideal adventurer material. So she turns the negatives into a positive, at least from a role playing perspective. Uh, and uh, t- you know she points out that uh, these these differences um, uh, not only between the the, the females of the non-human races, but the, she also examines the, the, the children of these, uh, the offspring of these, uh, the couplings of uh, non-humans and, and humans, and, and sees in the difficulties that you would imagine would arise uh, quite a fertile area for developing in character. Now, many, of the, many of the comments that Janet's made with regard to orcs is also um, equally valid when we discuss uh, other goblinoids and humanoids, such as the goblins and gnolls. So she says that to let the women be simply pale imitations of their menfolk is a wasting an opportunity. Amongst races that are naturally short-lived, or in which male members regularly die in battle, the women—the women—are going to have to spend much of their time child-rearing. And she says parenthetically, "I find it difficult to imagine the men of these races doing their share of the housework." But failure of my imagination. Uh, that's kind of funny. Then um, she goes on and. Um, so well she she discusses how you could have the the goblins um perhaps even hel- helping adventurers female goblins helping them because they don't want the men folk coming back <laughs> um, um, perhaps a little bit of comedy that you can inject in there but uh certainly um, you can you can use um, you can look at these female uh, members of a tribe of gnolls or goblins and imagine what. Their motivations might be, and how sometimes they might might not lie along the same lines as their menfolk, and that this um, discovering these differences and and using them in negotiation or, or you know or getting hold of them as a, and using as a weak point perhaps even uh, strategically could be well you know it's fascinating you know it, it just adds so much depth to to your game. So I've already mentioned a little bit about Grendel's mother um, being the archetypal um, she-troll and uh, from from uh, old English mythology um, folklore. So I won't return to that. But she does, uh, Janet that is, does go on to discuss how many spirits of nature are portrayed in myth as female. Um, so she looks at the dryads and naiads and nymphs and sylphs and stuff, and shows talks about how they're often portrayed as beautiful females, um, and as well as uh, appearing as predatory. And she says, why not? Most nature spirits are powerful and uh, and wayward, and would exude an aura of seductive menace. But this does not mean that they should be one-dimensional pinups um and she she looks at why they might be like that why does the dryad um charm the male um of the race or, or you know male elf or male human of a party um and entrap them in the woods for you know one to three years or whatever it was um, if they're not evil um well she says that they're alien um part of the it's part of the nature their nature um she says as ways of explaining this or perhaps the spirit has no comprehension of time she perceives only now uh, and past and future are meaningless terms so um they may seek um companions like you know these charmed males um as a way to enable the spirit to maintain a physical form or experience the ecstatic flow of time, uh, and then yeah, what do, what effect does this sort of have on the on the spirit? So the spirits are lying there for hundreds and thousands of years, presumably doing nothing. Um, anybody else would go insane. So they're not simply like you know beautiful women in a grotto. Um, they are something else something very much other, um, and should be portrayed like that. Not necessarily evil and menacing, but certainly um, potential hazards, um, um, forces of nature or supernature (laughs) that have to be negotiated. And that brings us to the end. almost um she has a few things to say about medusa and harpies and lamias and all these various other unusual uh, often predatory uh monster like uh, females uh, how do they reproduce um if there are no males but well, i believe you know um wizards of the coast have addressed that now that they 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 can be of any sex and and so on. So some of this may be rather dated, but is that a is that a good fix to the issue? You know, is it is just having male medusa and female medusa a fix? Um, perhaps taking the sex away from the medusa is the is the fix and having them more of a, like a sexless gorgon, um, whatever works in your world, right? I think that's pretty much um that's pretty much what she's looking at in this document so she says in conclusion whenever you build up a non-human society don't forget the superior race oh yeah so she's she's definitely trying to get some uh, some male re- responses from the mails uh mail being the postbag of course so um, that wraps it up for part two of the More Deadly Than the Mail by Janet Files. Thank you for listening. And that brings me to a close of another episode of Confessions of Wee Tim Bushi. Thank you very much for listening. Um, as usual, yeah, I started off really strong and then my voice got pretty tired in there in the middle towards the end. Um, but that's the nature of our Anchor FM um, gorilla podcasting style apparently so um, we leave it and we allow it to stand and we, we put it out there and people who want to listen and comment are very welcome to do so um, look forward to hearing from you if you want to get in contact you can drop me a message here, I've remembered the name this time it's Anchor FM uh, if you go to where these podcasts come from, the episodes come from, uh, my account you'll see a place to uh drop me a message yeah presuming you have an account of your own if you don't you can contact me uh on twitter at old shabby gamer where i'm called minion the same name and uh that's pretty much it yeah i still haven't got around to the uh doing all that uh email malarkey but there you go and uh, i will do one day so have a great week and until next time I Take care. Bye-bye.